Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, if you also, you can put a finger there in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, we'll look at a verse there as well. It, I it's hard for me to believe, this being the first Sunday in December, that we are quickly ending 2018. It kind of freaks me out a little bit, because it seemed like this year has just evaporated and is gone, and 2019 is going to be right around the corner, it's coming so fast. But before we get to 2019, we've got to go through Christmas. And here on December 23rd, which is the Sunday before Christmas, we're going to do communion here together because communion just uh, it points us to uh, or it reminds us what, what Christmas is pointing toward. Christmas is not an event in and of itself. It is an event pointing toward an event. And communion reminds us of the event that Christmas is pointing us towards. So on 23rd, we're going to share that time together in here. And the 24th, 3.30 and 5, we have our Christmas Eve services, which are just going to be a, a great celebration of the most incredible event in, his, in history. And, um, and so it's just going to be a, a fun time together where we celebrate the birth of Christ. For the next three weeks, we are going to be focused on a name. And I'm so excited. In fact, I will tell you this. Sometimes in, in preparing for messages, I struggle with stuff, and you look, and you read, and you're all this kind of stuff. These three messages just kind of flowed out of me. And they were just... And, and I think a lot of that... Uh, goes to the fact that I'm, they're just close to my heart. They're, there's something that I'm passionate about. And so I've already wrote these uh, messages for the next uh, three weeks. And so I'm, we're, we're going to kind of uh, talk about a name of God, a name that was given to Christ, uh, but it is a name. And we're going to look at what does it have to do and how does it impact our lives today, thousands of years later, after that name was given. And it's the first name that was given to Christ. Above all the names that he was called and given, this was the very first thing. So it's kind of like, this is what you need to know about him. Above everything you hear about him and will be taught about him, here is the thing that God the Father wanted us to know first about Jesus. So it's not just a name, but it's an important name. And it says something about who he is. And, and, and it's hard to, for us to grasp the significance of it because for us, names really aren't significant. I mean, they don't really... They, they don't really reveal anything about the person. I mean, it's just mainly a, a label we put on that person to identify them and who they are. And, and, and my name's Jerry. That doesn't really mean anything to you. It doesn't reveal anything about me or my passion and my priority and my character. It doesn't say anything about me. It's just a, a label for you to identify when you see me. It's, oh, that's Jerry. And you don't really care what my name is until there comes that moment in which you want to capture my attention or something like that. And so for us... Names are just that label to identify, but it wasn't the same in ancient Jewish culture. Names meant something. They revealed something about the person, some aspect about them, some character about them, some, some, something about their life, good or bad. You know, it just revealed a little bit about who this person was. In fact, there's a story in Scripture where uh, this child birth was very, very difficult, very, very painful. And the mother named the child, the boy, a name that meant pain because of that. <clears throat> and of course, that's, that's thanks, Mom, right? That, that forever, before people met you or really knew you or anything, just when they found out your name, you were a pain to people, even before you got to be a pain to people. But many times, parents would not name their child at birth. They would wait a while for the name that would stick and stay with them till they discovered something about their character or about 
their, you know, their life and how they lived, how they view something, just some habit that they had, some twink in their personality, and they would label or give them a name that would wrap up that meaning in it. So your names back then revealed something about you, revealed something about your person, your, your passion, your priority. It said something about you, not so much today. And so God did that as well, because that's how the Jewish people lived and worked. You know, your name would, it would, it would actually kind of prejudice you, good or bad, in someone else's mind, because before I, I met you and got to know you and got to know your personality and became friends with I would have this preconceived idea of who you are and what you're about because your name would reveal that to me. And whether it was fair or not, that was the reality that they were in. And so God understood that. And when he was talking to the Jewish people about who he was, he, he, he picked names for himself. And the names would have meaning. They would reveal a passion. They would reveal the character. They would reveal the priorities of God. And so you have names like Jehovah Rapha, the Jewish Name a word Rapha meant heal, and that was Jehovah Rapha was a name of God, and it revealed the character and the passion, the priority of God. That God is a God who longs and desires to heal. Jehovah Jireh was another name of God, and Jireh meant provider, and so it revealed some aspect of the character, the person, the priorities of the Father, and that He wants to provide for us. And so the names of God would reveal something about His character about his passions, about his priorities. They weren't just something that was used, like we use it as a label just to identify that person so that we can call them, get their attention. And and the reason I bring this up, because in the story of Christ, we are given a name, a name that is incredibly profound, a name that reveals a priority of Christ in your life life and the the tragedy is that we have a tendency to just go by this name so quickly because the names become commonplace especially at christmas time we we sing about it we talk about it uh, we refer to it it's it's put out there but and because it's so common we've really lost just how profound this is especially when you consider that this name is the first name that jesus was given and that meant, and, and names reveal something about it. So, so it's, it's God's way of saying, above everything you will come to see and know about Jesus, this is what I want you to know first. This is what his passion and priority is. And so, before I get to that name and the verse that kind of reveals it to us, l- let me kind of help you get in a mindset. And that is this, before the birth of Christ, God had always been out there or up there, or over there. God had always been at a distance. God had never been near. He was always somewhere else. Either he's up there, or in the Jewish people, he was the Holy of Holies was where God interacted with man, and so he may be in there. But God was always somewhere else. Yes, you understood that God had passion and commitment to the Jewish people, but God was never near to you. God was always out there, or over there. I mean, after all, God was holy. And perfect. And I as a man, even as a Jewish man, I am unholy and I am not perfect. And that creates a separation. And God is so holy and I'm so unholy that this separation was great. And that just reinforces this idea that God is always over there. Or God is up there. Or God is in there. God is not near. It's unlike Christianity where God, through his forgiveness 
lives in the spirit of man through his spirit. But before Christ, that was not the case. God was never near. God was always over there. God was always up there. God was always somewhere else. And every single day, imagine this, every single day of a Jewish man or girl's life, they were reminded, they were taught that God is not near. God is somewhere else. God is not near you. He is over there. He is up there. God is not near. It was what was taught from generation to generation. God is holy. He is to be worshipped. He is to be magnified. He is in, in a positive way to be feared. And he is committed, yes, to you as a Jewish people. But he's not near. And it was taught from generation to generation to generation. Not just taught in word, but also just the, the layout of the temple reinforced and taught that God is not near to you. The temple layout, you know, in the middle of the temple was the Holy of Holies, and that's where God was. That's where God in heaven came down and interacted with humanity. That's where God was. And so the layout of the temple, though, reminded them, hey, that's where God shows up for humanity, but it's far from you. God is not near. In fact, let me show you what I mean. The temple was laid out with several courts. Kind of like you've heard of concentric circles, right? A circle inside a circle inside a circle inside a circle, right? Well, the, the temple court where the Holy of Holies was in the middle, it was laid out that way, not in, in circles, but more in, in kind of a rectangle. And it was made out of these various courts. The outer court, which was the largest court, was called the Court of Gentiles. This meant that anybody could go in here. If you were a Jewish man or Jewish woman, or if you were not a Jew at all, you were a Gentile. You didn't have anything to do with the Jewish religion. You weren't connected to it. Maybe you showed up just out of curiosity. Anybody could come into the court of Gentiles. It was open for everyone. This is where you could come and investigate who this Jewish God was. A little side note. You remember the story in the Bible where Jesus gets so mad and he turns tables over? You know, and grew up in Baptist churches, they always like if a little kid, a high school kid, come in with a fundraiser for his school, they'd go like ballistic. You can't do that! Remember, Jesus tore up the... you got to understand the context. What was taking place was the religious leaders were allowing... People had to bring animals for sacrifice for the sin because it was a sacrificial system. And what happened is they would bring them in and some of the people would bring animals and they're like, oh, that's not good enough, you have to go buy one. Or people would travel in and they wouldn't have... They'd travel so far they couldn't bring an animal, so they would buy one, which was okay... But they were selling them in the court of Gentiles at exuberant prices. They were ripping off people. And so Jesus walks in this, and it's people who don't know God in this area. And he's saying, the you're tarnishing the image of God. You're making God look like a God who rips off people, not a God who loves people. And it ticked him off that they were tarnishing the image of God because why? They were selling these. They were ripping people off in the court of Gentiles. And anybody could go into the court of Gentiles. That was the most outer court. It was the court that was most distant from the presence of God, from the presence of God, excuse me, of God. Now, inside that court was the court of women. Now, this was not just a court for women. This was the closest that a Jewish woman could get to the Holy of Holies, which was representative of the presence of God. So in this court, there were no Gentiles. It was Jewish men and Jewish women could come into this court. So we're getting closer to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, but look how things are getting more and more restricted. And then inside of that was the court of priests, or excuse me, the court of Israel. The court of Israel was any man, Jewish man, could go into this court. Jewish women could not go. 
Gentile men or women could not know. This was all Jewish men could get in. Inside that court was the court of priests. This was only for Jewish men who were in the priesthood. Jewish laymen could not go into this court. Then inside that was the holy place, which was the place where the high priest and his attendants could go to get ready to go into the Holy of Holies. And then inside that, the very center was the Holy of Holies. And only one man could go in there, the high priest, and only one time a year. And that was the place where the presence of God would come down and interact with man under the old system. So think about that. Look at what that says. Just look, think about what the structure of the temple said. It said the closer you get to God, the more restrictive it is of humanity. You know, and then when it came to the actual presence of God, there was no one but one man that could go into there, and it was the high priest, and he could only go where God was once a year. It kept saying, the closer you got to God, Human access was more and more and more restricted. What did that say to them? It says that God is holy. God is perfect and you're not. God is out there. He is bigger than you and he is better than you and he is not near you. That's what they were taught. Verbally and just the whole setting up of the system, that's what they understood. And there's some truth in that. God is holy. And God is bigger than you, and he is better than you. I mean, think about it. Our earth is just a piece of cosmic dust hanging here in the cosmos, and you are just a piece of dust on it. So in many ways, you're an insignificant piece of dust on an insignificant piece of dust hanging in the cosmos. God is so much bigger than that. God is bigger, and he is better, and he is holy. And to some, uh, you know, in, on some level, and it just makes human sense that God is not near. And this was the reality that humanity and the Jewish people, even them who were God's people, lived with for thousands upon thousands of years. And then, not only that, just back up the 400 years from the birth of Christ back 400 years from that of the thousands of years that was always been god is not near god is not near god is not near to you he may be near to the jewish people but he's not near to you and of those thousands of years in which they understood that they were taught that in those 400 years it was just uh accented if you will insinuated if you will in those 400 years god didn't even speak the high priest would go into the holy of holies and god was silent for 400 years Again, reinforcing the message that seemed like everything was saying to them, and that was this, God is great, God is holy, but one thing God is not, he is not near to you. That was the human God paradigm that everyone understood and just accepted. Until one night, when an angel appeared, thinking God had been silent for 400 years, And a representative of God stepped through the veil that separates our reality from God's reality and stepped in. And I find it so amazing that he didn't step into the court of a king or a ruler or a leader or someone of rich and influence. He stepped into the presence of a nobody. Mary and both Joseph, nobodies. You know what that tells you? You may consider yourself a nobody, but that means you're a candidate for God to speak to you. 
Because God doesn't just speak to powerful people. He doesn't just speak to, to holy, holy religious people. God loves to bring incredible messages to people that consider themselves nobodies. So don't count yourself out if you think you're a nobody. Because when he stepped with this incredible change, this incredible message, he stepped into not the presence of a ruler or a king, or the, he stepped into the presence of these nobodies. And he said something that was so profound that told us that God was about to change the, the God-human paradigm in ways that no one ever thought would happen. And he did with a name. Matthew chapter 1, what's going on is this. Mary is kind of getting ready, as you know, to get married to Joseph. In their, in their culture, in their time, you had kind of a two-period process, a little different than ours. You'd actually be legally uh, attached to someone, married to someone, in, in a period of time that we would consider like a, uh, your fiancé, that, 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 that period of time when you're engaged but not married, that little time right there. You're actually legally husband and wife, but it was after a ceremony like us that you would go and live together and and all the benefits that come with marriage and that. So it was in that period of time that she was connected, you know, legally connected to her husband, Joseph, but she becomes pregnant. And she knows that everyone will know it's not Joseph's, and no one and Joseph will know it's not Joseph. And so she just, what am I going to do? And how do I explain this when I say that God has put this child within me? No one's going to believe that. In fact, that is what happens when she tells Joseph, guess what happened? Joseph says, no way. He knows it's not his child. And no doubt he was hurt. He was angry. But it seems that Joseph was a very upright and honest man. And he loved Mary. That he didn't want to just destroy her character, which he could. And some people could argue he could have had a right to do in his anger, but instead he was trying to figure a way, how can I disconnect because I, the trust is lost from her, but how do I not destroy her in the process? And he was struggling with this. In the middle of all this, an angel comes to Joseph and he says, Joseph, Joseph, don't do it. The child within her, she's telling you the truth, is of God. And she has not cheated on you. Take her as your wife. I know you love. And so that's what's going on. In the midst of all this chaos, Matthew writes this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name. Now think of the significance of that. And they shall cause name. In other words, he's saying, and here's what he's going to be known about. Here's what his priority is going to be. Here's where his passion is going to lie. Here's what his mission is going to be about. And this is the first name. And then the, above everything else that you're going to hear about this guy, above everything else you're going to see him do, above all those things, and those are all great and powerful and wonderful, and they're all a part of his mission. But before you get in, and we get into talking about all that and seeing all that, here, before you even meet him, what I want you to know him as, what I want you to know about him, above everything else that you will come to know about him, here's what I want you to know. That's what he's saying. This is the first name. <laughs> and she'll bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now think about that. Think about especially them how profound it was. 
I can only imagine for so many it was so incredibly difficult to even wrap their minds around this because the only thing they had ever learned, their parents had ever learned, their grandparents and their parents and their parents had ever learned and thought about God was that God is not with us. God is in there or God is up there or God is out there. He's just not right here. And God steps in and says, this one that is coming is going to change that paradigm. No longer will you feel or think that God is out there. No longer do you have to wonder where he is at any moment. He is going to come. And here's what you got to know about him before you know anything else about him. Is that he's going to be here. He's going to be near. He is the God. He's not any less God. He is the God with us. And so many of them probably had to shake their head and say, what? What? This God who I have always thought was over there is now going, he's going to put on human skin and become one of us and walk and live among us. I imagine some of them just sit down and say, this is just too much, it's just too much. Because that was the paradigm that they were under and God was changing it. And I can only imagine how difficult, we sometimes think it's difficult for us to think that God is near. Imagine how it was for them. But why? What a, why would a God that is self-sufficient and is, need, <laughs> and is in no need for us, I mean, as I said, we're the piece of dust on the piece of cosmic dust hanging in the cosmos and the God is all over it. Why would he even want to become the dust of the dust. Why would he become one of us? Why would he become the God with us? And, and if I asked you that, some of you would end up saying, because you're good Christian people, you would say, to save us. To save us. You're right. But why did he come as a baby to do that? I mean, why did he come and, and get born and live 30 years among us in order to do that? Why didn't, because he's capable of, why didn't he just step into skin as a human man and just appear and say, it is time for me to be crucified for the sins of the world and just be here a day or two and get crucified and pay for sin and bring the Holy Spirit so that we can find forgiveness and grace. If it was, he became man. He became the God with us. In order just to save us, why did he take 30 years to get there? Why did he live as a as a baby, and then as a teen, and as a 20-something, and a 30 Why did he live here and go what he went and do what he did and, and go through what he went through in order to do something that he could just have appeared and said, now is the day, now is the time for me to be crucified for the sinners of the world? Well, the writer of Hebrews, I think, reveals that. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says this. For we do not have a high priest... He's talking about Jesus. Priest was the one who represented God, uh, the people before God and God before the people. And, and so he says that our high priest, the one who represents us before God, is Jesus. For we in Christ, we do, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. God did what centuries of people thought was 
impossible. He became Emmanuel. God with us, God with me, a God who is near. Not, not just to come and take my place on a cross to die for my sins. That is what releases my life and creates eternal potential within me. But it wasn't just that. And that's, I don't even think, the, the main thrust of the name Emmanuel. <laughs> he, above all that we understand about him and came to know about him and understand what he did, before all that, what the Father wanted us to know about him is that he is the God with us. So that we will always know that he is a God He's not just around, but he's a God that is near me and, under, this is, and understands what it's like to be me. Imagine if you had a God that just came down and quickly died for the sin, your sin, and opened up eternity in heaven with him. That would be awesome, right? That would be great. That would be unmerited favor. It would be absolutely grace. But if that's all he did and he always stayed up there, there would be times in our life where we go thinking and say, Jesus, I love you, but you just don't understand. You don't understand what it's like to experience this. And you don't understand what it's like to go through this. And you don't understand how to feel this way. You just don't understand. It would be a God that is out there and we would appreciate the forgiveness and grace. But we'd have a sense of great disconnection with him. Because one thing he would not have is an understanding what it's like to be us. Even though. He might be the God that came down and saved us. But because he became Emmanuel, because he put on human skin and he lived here and lived what it was like to be a man, you know what that means? It means when I, in my darkest valley, above everything that he is, he is my Emmanuel. When, when I'm betrayed, and I'm hurting. You know what he does? He leans in and he says, I'm not far off. I'm right here. I'm Emmanuel. I'm the God that's with you. And by the way, I know what it's like and what it feels like to be betrayed. You know how awesome it is to not only know God is near you in those moments, but that he understands what it's like to be in that moment? And when we feel abandoned, it is him who can lean in and say, I am here with you. And I know what it's like to have those who you thought would stand with you, abandon you. I know what it's like. Do you know what it is to, to feel that God not only is near, but he understands what it's like to be abandoned when you feel abandoned? Oh. And when you are misunderstood, and when you are ignored, and when you're not included, and when you are tempted, he, you know what he says? He says, I know. I know. I've been there because of above all that I am, I'm not just the God up there. I'm Emmanuel. I'm the God that came down there. I'm the God that, that saved you, yes, but I'm also the God who put on clothes and walked like you walk because one thing I wanted you to understand about me is that I get it. I get it. I get it. I know what it's like. You're not alone not just because i'm here you're not alone because i know what it like what it's like to feel what you 
steal. You know how awesome that is? He knows. He is, and he still is, Emmanuel. So when you're hurting, he says to you, maybe that's where you are this morning, you're just hurting in something. And what he says to you is, I get it, because I've walked that path. And, and when you're in that valley, he says, I, I'm there with you in it, and man, I've been in a valley before. And when you're feeling like you're in a desert, he whispers, I'm with you. Let me tell you something, I'm no stranger to a desert. I know what that's like. I believe that it would be difficult to continue with hope and healing if we simply had a God who just saved us and we know we were escaping the penalty of our sin, but, but, but that he couldn't understand us. He didn't know what it was like to be us. And I think God understood that, that it would be difficult to carry on in some of the moments of life with hope and healing and toward healing if we just had a God who said, I saved you, and now you don't have to worry about the eternal penalty of sin, but I don't get you because I've never been you. So what he said is we don't only have to come and be the Savior, but before all that, you know what we have to be? I have to, Jesus, you know what you have to be? You have to be the God that is with them. You have to be the God that goes down there and walks amongst them and goes through what they go through so that when they look to you, they will find, as the writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a God, we do not have a Savior that cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who's been tempted, who's walked what we've walked in all things as we are, yet without I have hope when I go through things, knowing that my God not only has the power to get me through it, but that he's been in similar situations so he understands what I'm feeling and what I'm struggling with. And when I know I have someone that doesn't just, is there for me, but understands me, that's when my hope can be kept alive. That's when my belief for a brighter day does not die. That's why one of the most profound, if not the most profound thing said about Jesus was said when that angel gave him his first name. And he said all these things took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. They shall call his name. Here's what he's going to be known about. Before you know anything about him, know this. Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. I don't, I don't know what you're going through, but hear me on this. God is with you. He is with you, but not just that he's with you. Know this. God gets you. He gets what the feeling and the emotion and the struggle and that you're going through. He gets it. And when you know that, you really, really know that you're not alone. And, and I encourage you to respond to that by just reaching out to him. Maybe for the first time. 
Maybe today is the day that you reach out and say, Jesus, I always heard the story that you were the God on the cross and did all that 2,000 years ago, but I didn't realize that you're not just the Savior, you're the Emmanuel, that you're the God with us, that you came down and put on human skin so that when we, we reach out to you in our sin, you have the power to forgive and you have the power to get us. So I want to respond, and today, if that's where you are, just respond and say, God, I just accept the grace from the cross, and I give you my heart. I invite you into my life, because you're the God that is with me, and I want to move forward in life with you. Just pray that, and just ask him in, and if you do, let us know. Just come up to me, or email me, or text me, or Twitter me, or whatever. Just say, hey, Jerry, I said yes to Jesus Christ. And maybe you are a believer. And maybe that's what you needed to hear today. Maybe back in the back of your mind, you always knew that God was omnipresent, one of those fancy words, that God was around. But maybe you just need to hear that what it means to say that God is with you means also that God gets you. He understands. And maybe you just needed to say and know today that. And maybe you just need to reach out and say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the assurance that you give that you get me. You know what it's like to be hurt. or You know what it's like to be uh, unsure and scared. Look at the Garden of Gethsemane. You know what it's like to experience the emotions and the struggles that I have and I'm going through. And there's just such comfort in knowing that you get me. You get me. And just rest in that. And just lean into the arms and the grace of a God who is near and gets you and says, I am your Emmanuel. I'm not over there. I'm not over there. I'm not up there. I am the God that is with you. Just rest in that. And let him, the knowledge of that, reinvigorate and refresh and resuscitate your hope and your belief in what can be and in yourself. And this is where we're just going to sit for the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about what does it mean that God is Emmanuel when we're going through those desert moments in life where it just seems like nothing's connecting and, and nothing's working and we're just, we see no vision forward for our life. In those moments, if you're not there, you'll get there. What does it mean in those moments that, that God is Emmanuel? And we're going to talk about when we go into those deep, dark valleys of our life and it just feels like everything is caving in on us. What does it mean that God is with us in those moments? And what can it mean for you to move forward in it? And so we're just going to spend time in the profound nature of that name that we have a tendency to just pass over. But know this today. And let this give you hope. When you leave here, God is going with you. He's not out there. He's not over there. He's not with them. He's not up there. He's right there with you, walking through what you're walking through with you. And he understands and relates to every emotion that you have.